Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. Climate change poses an extreme threat to natural environments and people around the world. The world needs a rapid transition away from fossil fuels to prevent dangerous climate change. However, this is just half the story. The other half is about creating a just future and centering stories of communities and Indigenous peoples. One organisation that does that is SUPNA, South Asian Climate Solidarity, an Australian-based climate justice collective. Ruchara Talukdar is one of SUPNA's co-founders and she gave a keynote address at the Eco-Socialism Conference hosted by Green Left Weekly and Socialist Alliance on the weekend of the 1st and 2nd of July. Here is that keynote address. Hi everyone, um, I'll begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that I live on, of the Wurundjeri, the lands here and the lands I live on, of the Wurundjeri people. Um, I also acknowledge traditional owners of the land that I was born on in West Bengal, the Santal people. And we don't have this practice of acknowledgement in India. Uh, but the, with the work I do, um, I, I find it more and more relevant to be able to acknowledging both the worlds I live and draw from. So I am what we call um, an environmental activist. Um, my journey began in Greenpeace in India, uh, an international organization, but which also came under the radar of the Modi government that was cracked down on. Uh, and I moved to Australia 15 years ago and have been with Greenpeace, um, Australian Conservation Foundation, Friends of the Earth. Um, and uh, but, uh, and and but, um, the focus of, so I wrote my PhD thesis comparing environmental activism in the global north and south with India and Australia as examples, and I looked at the struggles of coal communities and how mainstream environmentalism and climate activism works with them. So my case study in Australia was um, Adani uh, and the Carmichael mine and the Wangan and Jagalingu and the many strands of the struggle against Adani. And I compared that with um, the people there, the people of Mahan forests in central India uh, and how they were fighting um, to stop a coal mine with Greenpeace. So I bring this into context because I want to, um, I, I think um, Clifton's given us a lot to ponder on in terms of what's going on with the political um, and the ideological bent of the RSS um, and Modi and what that means for India's democracy. And I want to ground us in a place that has shaped my outlook as an environmentalist in the global south, uh, given me the grounding in people's struggles uh, against mining and resources, and is, it continues to be the focus of my work. So I want, uh, I want us to focus on central India, broadly the region in the center of India, which has significant parts of five to seven uh, states, uh, which are forested. Um, old forests, and which has been the site of conflict between indigenous Adivasi people, as well as non-Adivasi long-settled communities on the land, um, and the government and the state for a very long time. So what I want to do in this 20 minutes or less than 20 minutes I have is talk about the arc of struggle. So the struggle for democracy 
and democracy as environmental rights and self-determination and climate justice in central India, where there is the most number of indigenous Adivasi people living in the forests on their land. And, and what that means today in a state of climate crisis, and what that also means actually for the topic of this conference, which is about moving beyond capitalism. So this um, image, is of the community in Mahan when they got their forest rights. Um, and um, forest rights in India came in, and the, I'm, I'm just gonna go to the next slide in a minute, uh, but the banner says, um, Loktantra Zindabad, democracy, long live democracy. Uh, that's essentially what it states. Now here on the ground in central India, which has a lot of coal and other minerals under the ground and forests above, and is the home and heartland of indigenous people living on the land in India. Environmental rights and self-determination equals to democracy. Democracy and legal democracy is enshrined in certain rights. So this is at the heart of the contention today with increasing mining and other kinds of um, stresses on forests, on people's forests, and simultaneously people still getting rights over their forests, which um, they were evicted out of in the colonial period by the British. So there's this, this tension marks the ground in central India. Um, so there was a very long movement after, you know, after Indian independence, in the decades, very long movement by indigenous communities and civil society groups, which came and all finally unified under the umbrella of the campaign for survival, of dign survival and dignity for indigenous people to have, for indigenous and non-indigenous long settled communities on the land to have legal rights over the land and forests that they had been evicted from in the British colonial era, when the British took over the forests and made them state forests and started using them as resources for the Industrial Revolution and to rear out the railway. What, what came out of the very long struggle over decades was the Forest Rights Act and another act before that, which I won't have the time to get into, so I won't, but essentially, if you think of if you think of the native title in Australia, which is an equivalent to the forest rights in India in terms of intent, or if you think about land rights in Australia, the intent was to address colonial wrongs and for indigenous people to be able to claim their land back. So similar intent, the native title was instituted in the early 1990s and the Forest Rights Act after decades of mobilization and movements came in in 2006 and of course it was in many ways a compromise to what movements were demanding. But this is the, so with my work I look at the differences between democ how democracy is enabled on the ground in Australia and India through mechanisms like this. So the Native Title Act um, is not as progressive as the Forest Rights Act. The Forest Rights Act essentially gives communities, indigenous communities, the right to veto mining if they so choose. So environmental self-determination, and I know that some people are feeling really good hearing about that, but there's the other side of the story about the violations. So I'm coming to that. So the, the Forest Rights Act came in um, at a time when basically 
um, the Indian economy had begun open, opening up in a big way. Um, neoliberalism um, and markets were coming into the forests. Mining was increasing, coal mining and other kinds of mining. So this is the interesting thing. Just like the Native Title Act came in a little while before the minerals boom started in Australia, um, and the native title, of course, did bring in some, I mean, this is, I mean, there has been an intense debate about whether native title is adequate or not. There's been an intense debate about whether mining has been good for First Nations people in Australia or not. But I cannot disregard the um, um, Professor Marcy Lang Langton assessment that the native title, of course, at the time of the mining boom, did provide some mechanism and power for, Indian, for First Nations people to be able to negotiate, which they did not have before in the previous mining boom eras. Now, if you think about that, and if you think about forest rights, um, which came in in 2006, at a time when mining, and this was before the Modi government, mining was starting to increase massively in central India, a lot for a lot of coal, but other minerals as well. Forest rights came in at that time when communities could actually have some rights and a possibility for self-determination. Around the same time also came a revamped uh, land rights, um, revamped Land Acquisition Act, which overhauled the colonial legal structures and again gave communities the place and the position to have, you know, to have the information and to make decisions for themselves and negotiate compensation on, you know, on, on, on equitable terms. So the Forest Rights Act came in in 2006 and immediately there was a backlash from industry, of course, but also state governments and state bureaucracies did not want to relinquish power because they wanted mining revenues. So this has always been at the heart of the conflict with the Forest Rights Act. Now what happens from 2014 when we've had the Modi government um, in power is you know, some of the details that I'm going to talk to in terms of how uh, democracy through the Forest Rights Act and the rights that people can, you know, land rights that people can have has been, has been significantly threatened. So what, what happened after, um, the, the previous slide had an image which was about the historic win of the Dongria Kond, it, we can't call it a win, but the, the case of the Dongria Kond community in uh, a rem remote indigenous community in the eastern state of Orissa, who used the Forest Rights Act for the first time in, its, in the way that it ought to be used. And community after community, over 100 disconnected remote hamlets of indigenous people said no to bauxite mining on their sacred mountains. So that was in 2012 and since then uh, and, and with the instituting of the Forest Rights Act, it's been a tool for communities to fight for, for basically fight on legal grounds for rights that they've always had. So this picture is from the stone slab or the Patalgari movement in Jharkhand where indigenous people were setting up stone slabs of the fifth schedule of the constitution. Outside their villages, the fifth schedule has rights and safeguarding of Adivasi lands and that's in the constitution and Forest Rights Act and the other act that had come in before that were actually legalizing those rights and grounding them. So, with the coming of these kinds of laws, communities had legal tools with which they could contest mining. But, what's, what, but what happened? Are communities getting their rights? 
So I think I want to, instead of, instead of talking about, uh, instead of giving us a laundry list of things that have changed, I think I want to delve into the case study of the Hastio resistance. And, and this has brought up a lot of you know, the mechanisms that are used by this government and also brought up this whole thing of crony capitalism and the, you know, the, the Adani, the power that Adani wields on the ground in many ways. Um, so I'm going to talk to this case study. So um, we know that in 2014, when the Modi government came in, there was a massive crackdown on civil society organizations, environmental organizations, and rights groups. And it was done through the mechanism of the Foreign Contributions Regulation Act, FCRA Act. So basically, foreign funding received by organizations was blocked. Um, the organization that I you know, have, have kind of worked in from from the very beginning of my experience as an environmental activist, Greenpeace. Greenpeace was made an example of. Greenpeace was made an example of and their funding was blocked because Greenpeace had been working to stop coal mining. Uh, using an international narrative of we need to stop coal. Uh, and they had worked with the Mahan community whose slide had first put up. Now what's been, have, what's been brewing for a long time um, parallelly in central India has been a resistance of communities in the state of Chhattisgarh, in the northern part of the state of Chhattisgarh, in really dense thick forests, the Hastio forests. Um, and and some, of this, some of the problems started before the previous government, before the Modi government, during the, during the Congress-led uh, previous government um, at the center. But Adani has been a constant in this case, and it just kind of shows how Adani's power has been growing on the ground. And regardless of which governments at the state level, you know, Adani is, is basically kind of getting what they want. So with the, after the forest rights, Act came in, communities in, um, in, in, in the Hasdeo forests um, basically filed for their Forest Rights Act, uh, filed for forest rights and got community and individual forest rights. What's been happening is that from 2012 there has been mining in, in, um, in the Hasdeo forests. The Congress-led government, before the Modi government, had designated the Hasdeo forests as forests that should not be touched for mining because they're high-value forests, animal corridors through thick forests, and because they're precious as carbon sinks. Now, an interesting thing is, while they said, while they said no to mining, they did approve a coal mine at the edge of the forest and left it there. Now, with the Modi government coming in, um, and more, more mining has been approved in the Hasdeo forests. The most recent ones being coal mines that were auctioned as India's response to the COVID recovery and coal blocks were allocated in the Hasdeo forests. Land acquisition for new coal mining in those thick forests, now happening in the interiors of the forest rather than the edge, were approved using draconian laws and not the new land acquisition law. Why? To bypass the Forest Rights Act and the, and the space it creates for communities to decide on mining. So what is happening now, um, over the last 10 years, what has intensified is basically bypassing the provisions of acts like the Forest Rights Act for communities to make decisions. So if we think of India's long struggle communities' long struggles for democratizing. Um, when, when scholars and scholars like Ramachandra Guha, Marxist scholar, you know, kind of write, wrote about the Chipko movement, the, the narrative 
that he put out was about democratizing resource management, democratizing managing our forests. So if we think about the long arc and the long struggle of communities to democratize resource management and to have a say at the table of making decisions on their land and their forests and their water, we find that India has been going around in cycles. When the Forest Rights Act came in, there was a possibility to actually give, when the Forest Rights Act came in, there was actually a possibility to grant communities rights uh, and for them to be able to consider secure futures and livelihoods based on forests. But with the rampant violation of forest rights, as seen in the case of Haas, there were even rights given to communities were taken away for mining. And there's been a 10-year-long movement which has been cracked down on in many different ways. Uh, the rampant violation of the provisions of uh, consent and giving information and self-determination are being violated. And the Hasdeo case became an international story in the solidarity movements because Adani was involved. There are many cases like this going on in India that we do not know about. What is occurring on the ground is that regardless of which governments in his power at the state level, the power of Adani is actually enabling uh, mining and, you know, kind of along with it, there is a pattern of violation of forest rights and kind of legal rights of indigenous people. Even when other companies are involved, it's become a pattern. So what, was a, what emerged is a strong possibility between 2006 and, say, 20, 2012 uh, about forest rights giving communities rights and to be able to have a say on what happens on their land is now being upturned through the violation of rights and the dilution of rights. I think the last part of what I want to talk about come, ties back to Australia. Um, so we have seen Adani intimately in Australia, and there was a lot of kind of like perplexity about how is this even possible? How does a corporation think that they can just get favors from the government, just, you know, basically railroad over approvals and violate you know, approvals and laws like they do in India. And I think the, 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 the case of Adani and Modi's friendship in Gujarat and the special economic, Adani's special economic zone, Mundra, in Gujarat. And that, in the beginning, when Adani became known in Australia, we heard there was a lot of reportage about what happened in Gujarat. So we've seen Adani intimately in Australia, and now the possibility of the massive Carmichael mines come down to a trickle, although it's still has, you know, has begun to be dug on, on First Nations land or the Wangan and Jagalingo. But what's, go, what's if, we, if, we think about, if we think about what we've understood about Adani, that has been the model of neoliberal mining development in India. And it has come at the back of, um, it has come at the back of violation of um, community rights taking community rights away, diluting acts that give communities rights. If we think of what the latest IPCC reports acknowledge in terms of the role of First Nations people, people and communities in managing forests, and that gives us better climate outcomes, and that is what is climate justice, then with India we're going in the opposite direction with what's happening in central India. The Hasdeo forests were one of the thickest and the oldest forests. Now, India's climate plans puts a lot of you know, emphasis on carbon sinks. So actual carbon sinks, which are deep old forests, are being cut down. Reforestation is happening, which is happening through privatized drives. 
basically a massive drive to take people's hard-won democratic rights and forests away all over again. And it is with these actions that we are coming into the, you know, coming into taking action on climate change in India. So these are some of the directions in which it's going. And sitting here in Australia, working within the climate movement, I find it very hard to kind of make people understand that democracy is what communities are fighting with on the ground for environmental self-determination, for rights and for secure futures. And unless we are able to form solidarities around that, and that is actually a direct challenge to the kind of capitalism that's unfolding on the ground in India. If we can't coalesce with support around and give solidarity around that, we aren't giving genuine solidarity. Climate action is not what's going to change the ground and give justice and climate justice in India. This, this work will. So, thank you. I'm just going to respond to parts of the first and the uh, kind of the last, um, the first and the third uh, comment and question, and Clifton pass on to you for, you know, kind of broader observations. Look, I think um, a part of me wish I could have you know, my presentation in one of the climate sessions because I find it's actually bleeding into some of the really critical conversations on how fascism kind of and neoliberalism is working on the ground in India. Um, so I, I, will, I will say that one thing I haven't had enough spice, space to emphasize and perhaps would have if we were talking in a separate climate panel is the, you know, while, while thinking about solidarity, uh, I'm also thinking about how when we look at the contexts here and we try to think about the risks in India, we don't understand the context and in not understanding the context, we're not able to give solidarity properly. The critical issue, so um, um, what's happened, what's been happening since 2014 when the BJP-led gov governments come in in the center uh, has been kind of crackdowns in different ways on civil, on civil society, environmental groups. That continues in different waves. And the very recent one has been, you know, kind of one of the most credible research institutions in India, independent research institutions, has, has, you know, kind of, they've literally been shut down. There was an article about it in the Washington Post, the Center for Policy Research, and an environmental organization and network doing critical, credible work with communities, informing them about their rights. Um, the Environics Trust, their offices have been raided. Um, and the third one is, a network of lawyers called uh, Legal uh, Initiative for Forests and Environment, which was, you know, has been doing fantastic, and they got the Green uh, Noble. Um, where, which year was that? The, they got the Maxis, they also got the Green. Um, so, so basically that work is recognized as critical around the world for giving communities access to information about their rights, for actually then fighting environmental cases in the National Green Tribunal. And the National Green Tribunal is being gutted. Um, you know, organizations doing critical work to take, to legally represent communities' interests in, in that space are being, you know, their work is being stopped. So to respond to your question also coming to this, I am not able to compare strategies here and there because what we are seeing in India is, uh, if I can speak specifically from the environmental and indigenous rights space, a dismantling of institutions, an erosion of rights. And the biggest, when I think of the work that 
you know, kind of collectively, all of us researchers, people on the ground more so, what has to do is the community being able to have information about their legal rights and representations. I cannot think of a scenario in Australia where indigenous communities who know that they can claim, claim native title don't know about it. So you can see how different the ground is even though we are democracies. So, that, so we need to be able to understand this context and the precarity of this context in a populous place like India because the future of climate justice for communities I think kind of hinges a lot on being able to give climate justice for communities in India because we're talking about populous location, you know, the largest indigenous population in the world, and the rights that underpin their, you know, secure futures, could begin to underpin the secure futures, are being eroded by the biggest threat being them not even being aware of them. And civil society groups working to make aware of them are called anti-national and cracked down on. So, so I just want to kind of talk about the difference in the ground and being cognizant of that. That was Arshira Talukdar, co-founder of SAPNA, South Asian Climate Solidarity, an Australian-based climate justice collective. She was delivering a keynote address at the Eco-Socialism Conference hosted by Green Left Weekly and Socialist Alliance over the weekend of the 1st and 2nd of July. And that's all we've got time for today. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally by the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kanjeri. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week. <laughs>